Hello. Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a place where Brookings scholars discuss ideas about and solutions for the most pressing public policy challenges. I'm Fred Dews. The intersection of policy and politics is a lonely place, writes Elaine K. Mark in her new book, How Change Happens or Doesn't, The Politics of U.S. Public Policy. In this podcast, K. Mark, director of the Center for Effective Public Management, explains why politics and policy have to come together for us to understand success and failure in U.S. politics. Elaine, thanks for joining me here today. Thank you. Let's start with uh, the Center for Effective Public Management, which launched earlier this year under your leadership and direction. You're the founding director. Could you briefly explain what is its purpose? And particularly, I'm interested in the adjective effective, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Okay. Uh, The purpose is to improve the state of governance in the United States, starting with the federal government, but also um, looking at all levels of government. And we see this a little bit differently than some think tanks do. We see governance as being composed of both the sort of standard government operations, which you would encounter in any school of public administration or any think tank devoted to public administration. And we also see this as part and parcel of a healthy democracy. And so if you think about it this way, when your political leaders are in dysfunction, Mm -hmm. it has a spillover effect on the career civil service. They can't plan. They can't train. They can't implement well. And so the two things, which are usually separated, frankly, both in in academia and in the think tank world, we see the two things as very much coming together. And that's what what we mean by effective public management. That's uh, that's an interesting way to, uh, to describe it. And the reason I focus on effective is because when I started my career at Brookings in 1996, I was the manager of something called the Center for Public Management. So we didn't have the effective in there at that time. Uh, it was led by uh, two names I'm sure you know, John DiUlio and then Donald Kettle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we actually were, were watching what, what you were doing mm-hmm. in the vice president's office and vice president Gore's office with the National Performance Review and the Government Performance and Results Act, GIPRA. Yes, exactly. We started it back then. We were doing it back then. We had probably a little bit more effective governance system, although we certainly had our problems with the Gingrich Congress um, and the impeachment effort, et cetera. But um, in those days, we were really beginning what now looking back 20 years was a modernization effort of the U.S. federal government. And a lot of things that we talked about back then, GIPRA being one, um, are now kind of standard operating procedure in the government. They are taught in public policy. Every public policy school will teach performance management. So one of the things I hope to do here is figure out, well, what comes next in terms of public sector reform? Okay. Turning to the word management, you've written recently that presidents get elected because of leadership but they succeed because of management. And you cited examples from Jimmy Carter to George W. Bush to Barack Obama. Can you mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, when when you're running for president, and this is the sort of mix of the politics and governance that we want to do in this in this center, when you're running for president, you are all about inspiration and hope. And so, you know, presidents get elected who manage to 
inspire Americans to come out and vote for them, to instill in them hope that they're going to do A, B, or C, whatever they promised, etc. And that's how presidents get elected. We tend to think of that as leadership because that kind of sounds so much better than management. Management sounds sort of dull and parochial. Um, the fact of the matter is that once a president is an incumbent, reality matters. Uh, if you have a terrible, terrible economy, it really doesn't matter how sweet-toned your uh, rhetoric is, okay? And I often ask people to think about it this way. Could President Clinton have withstood an impeachment attempt at him if he had had double-digit unemployment or inflation or a war that was going badly? or any one of those things or all three together. And he had none of those things. And he had none of those things. He had, in fact, a very healthy economy. He had peace in the world. He'd actually had a balanced budget. So on the managing the business of the government, he was doing extremely well. And that saved him from impeachment, in, from a terrible scandal, which would have taken down you know, a lot of other politicians. And I think when you do those counterfactuals, you begin to see that management of the government matters for incumbents. And whether it's managing a crisis like Katrina or managing a rescue operation like the Jimmy Carter's attempted um, attempt at rescuing the hostages from Tehran, or whether it's managing the rollout of a major new initiative, a health initiative, um, those things actually trump a president's ability to say sweet things, whisper sweet things in the ears of the American public. Let's turn to your, uh, your book. And I think a lot of what you've just described actually is encapsulated in your new book, which I find very interesting and, and enjoyable. Uh, it's called How Change Happens or Doesn't, The Politics of U.S. Public Policy. Uh, and as a starting point, let me start with a quote from a passage that I think kind of encapsulates what mm -hmm. you're talking about. Truman was an exceedingly unpopular accidental president with a hostile Republican Congress, and he succeeded in passing the Marshall Plan. Obama came into office on the heels of a robust political victory, and yet even with a Democratic Congress, he failed to enact climate change legislation. And that was in his first uh, couple of years. So what's going on there? What's the difference between the two? Popular president, unpopular president, major public policy achievement that has lasted for generations and a, uh, a big public policy well, non-achievement. Well, part of the lesson of the whole book is just how complex change is and frankly how overrated presidential popularity or unpopularity is along with how overrated things like bipartisanship are. That each issue assumes its own constellation of forces. And I use the analogy in there of surveying the battlefield, that just as a commander has to have a, a profound sense of situational awareness on a battlefield, um, somebody who is seeking to enact change in the American system needs a real awareness of all the players 
in what is a complex democracy. We have a mature, complex democracy. Other countries do as well. Um, but ours is has its own particular, you know, uh, flavor to it, so to speak. And one of the things I do in the book is say that there isn't any silver bullet, mm -hmm. right? Presidential popularity is not a silver bullet. Controlling both houses of Congress, having one party rule is not a silver bullet. That there are many things that coincide to either make change succeed or make it fail. And then what I try to do in the book is break down each one of those factors so that somebody who's seeking to either be an entrepreneur and make some change themselves or somebody who's just trying to understand the American system can do it in a bit of a systematic way. I found the book very accessible and would have enjoyed it greatly if I had read it 20 years ago when I was in graduate school. Uh, but I still got a lot out of it, uh, and I appreciate all the historical examples. Who is this book for, and why did you write it at this time? I think the book is – it's got two audiences. One are graduate students in public policy, okay, um, because even in wonderful public policy schools like the Harvard's Kennedy School that I came from, um, there does tend to be a distinction. Some people teach politics and some te people teach policy. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, the two have to come together. In other words, the last person in the room with President Clinton when he decided to sign the welfare reform bill was not the economist or demographer who had done the modeling on the bill, okay? The last person in the room was Vice President Gore and uh, Bill Clinton's top political aide, Bruce Reed. The, ultimately, it was a political decision informed by policy. And... In graduate schools, we tend to learn how to model, how to do econometrics, how to do policy analysis. We tend to learn how elections happen and campaigns happen, et cetera. But we don't put it together. And when you put it together, that's where you get the opportunity for change that's non-incremental. Non so one of the factors of success for policy solutions that you cite is uh, that it needs to be rooted in American values, for example. Mm -hmm. and you've got a lot of them. Can you speak to that? Yeah. I mean, that that's often a problem. And of course, the that was taught to us early by none other than Franklin Roosevelt, who in when he started looking at social insurance programs, the predecessors to Social Security, the models he had were all European models. They were, in fact, all brought to him by a series of um, emigrant, immigrants from Europe who brought with them European ideas of social insurance. It was Roosevelt himself who, when he finally got down to business on it, didn't listen to any of those ideas and turned this into an insurance program as opposed to a social welfare program. And here, there's a famous quote from Roosevelt that, that this way, no damn politicians will ever take this program away from me. And he was so right because what he understood was that Americans understood insurance and they liked insurance because that played to the individuality and the individualism ethos of the Americans. And so they liked insurance and they would support anything that they paid into and got something back. They didn't like 
the dole. They didn't like the welfare dole. That was something that they did in Europe and Americans didn't do. We still, frankly, don't like that very much. So by crafting his biggest legacies on the social side, the social social security program, as an insurance program as opposed to a social welfare program. He was understanding core American values and creating then a program that has lived on and remains extremely popular to this day. So let me jump forward then from there to the Affordable Care Act, mm -hmm. which is a health insurance program that's run through private insurance markets. And yet critics of it claim that it was a European model and it's social welfare. And you know, throughout the years, as you know, people mm -hmm. have scared us by saying we don't want the British system or the Canadian system even. And yet the Affordable Care Act is putting people into the private insurance market through government mm -hmm. uh, incentives, if you will. So it strikes me that the, per the fundamental premise of Obamacare is still within the bounds of American values and let it still demonized as something outside American values. What's going on there? Well, it's a little bit of both, though. I mean, it's, it is consistent with American values in that it is putting people into a private sector market. It is not socializing medicine. The doctors are not, they don't work for the government the way they do in England, the way they do in Canada. So in that respect, it is very much in line with American values. It is, however, a redistributionist policy. I mean, it does take general taxpayer money and provide subsidies to people who can't afford to buy health care. So it is not like Social Security or Medicare, for that matter. It's not an insurance program. It's not a program that you pay into your through your working life and get something back. So in that respect, it has much more of a European flavor. Um, and I think that the the sort of half, one foot in one camp, one foot in the other camp, is why the program continues to be so controversial, whereas Medicare is not controversial and Social Security is not controversial. Because in both of those programs, you pay into the programs through your working life. Another uh, jumping off point from the Affordable Care Act is complexity. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, and I, and I, I'm going to cite some of the numbers that you have in your book because I think they're so fascinating. And you say in the book that one characteristic of a, of a successful policy solution is that it is simple and understandable. And you write that the Marshall Plan, 1948, its legislation was 32 pages long, and it basically saved Western Europe. The 1933 Glass-Steagall Act that regulated financial institutions was 37 pages long. And in our era, the uh, Affordable Care Act was over 1,000 pages, and the Dodd-Frank financial regulation law was over 2,300 pages. Uh, you write, complexity breeds suspicion in a country where 40% of the population is ideologically opposed to government and where a total of 70 to 80% at any given time in recent history don't trust the government. So why is policymaking so complex? Why are these important bills so complex? I think this goes to two factors, right? In defense of complexity, you have to realize that you know we are now making policy on top of many decades of other policy. So there's just a lot of other things to take into account in writing a bill than there was you know um, 50 years ago. So there's a certain amount of that that's kind of understandable. 
However, I think I still think, even given that, that there's a lot of this that is unnecessary. That people have tried to figure out every single possibility in the course of bill writing, and what they've done is they've over-articulated the policy in the legislation. As opposed to letting it evolve, letting it happen through regulation, et cetera, and there's two problems with that, right? One is it doesn't allow for doesn't allow that wiggle room for adaptation, which every policy needs. You need a little bit of you know you need the intent of the law to be clear, but you don't. If you try to specify exactly how it's going to happen all the time, you're going to get yourself into trouble. So there's you need a little bit of of wiggle room for implementation, and then secondly, the big political problem is that you can't plunk down a thousand pages in a town hall meeting in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and say there's no death panels in here. See, look, how can you look through a thousand pages? Right. Mm-hmm. So, so the minute you have something that's this mammoth and complex, anybody who's got an idea ab- about how to take it down, um, justified or not, can say, "Yeah, that's in there. There's death panels in that bill, etc." And so, it really does make um, legislation really, really difficult. If you go back to the cap and trade. Bill, which you started with, which you know failed in spite of the fact that there was a Democratic Senate, a Democratic House, and a newly elected and and quite popular Democratic president, um, you get a you get a fourth factor on complexity, and that is that nobody really knew how it would work. Mm-hmm. It was really too complex. People couldn't anticipate if you did if we did X, what would happen then. And of course, politicians are risk averse, and for good reason. I mean, they're risk averse with the public. They'd, you know, and and you had every possible scenario from Senator Kerry saying this bill will cost you no more than a postage stamp a month, <laughs> to people saying that it was going to raise Americans' cost of electricity by thousands and thousands of dollars. Nobody knew, right? Okay, and, and you had environmentalists, I think, also claiming that you were creating a. Uh, a trading market for pollution. So the Wall Street side would uh, benefit from it. Oh, yeah. Wall Street was going to benefit from that. I mean, one of the things that killed it was that Wall Street, in, in between the time this idea was hatched and the idea came to the floor, we'd had the 2008 crash. And so Wall Street and traders in particular were viewed with great suspicion and so suddenly, as people realized, wait a minute, the way this bill was going to work was it was going to work through trading markets, and people were going to trade futures in energy in, in environmental issues. They were to, they were going to develop credit default swaps on them. Mm-hmm. They were going to do all this stuff in this new market, and you know, a lot of environmentalists were just totally turned off by this. So this uh, example starts to get into something else you talk about in the book is is the importance of faction and public support. And mm-hmm. as you widen the scope of the uh, policy idea and the conflict, you also, I think, widen all the groups who are going to have a say in it. Can you mm-hmm. talk to that? 
Yeah, you know, I came to Washington um, to work straight from graduate school in Jimmy Carter's administration to work in in politics. And the one book that I had read in graduate school that really stood out in my mind, and I didn't know that it at the time I read it, was a 1960 book by E. E. Schnatznyder that talks about the scope of conflict. And I I play that out in this book in the following way. His central insight is that the more an issue gets popular and broadened, the less control you have over the direction of that issue. You can't anticipate where it will go. So he starts off he starts off the book with this great example of a black guy and a white guy, they get into a fight in a bar over a woman. By the end of the evening, that fight over a woman turns into a citywide race riot. Okay. And as the the scope, the conflict expands, right, Right. from the bar to the neighborhood, suddenly you got people rampaging in the street. It's got a racial overtone and, you know, all hell's breaking loose. It's a national event. Yeah. And and that's – and he said it's uncontrollable. When more people get into the fight, you don't know what's going to – what's going to happen. And so one of the things that political entrepreneurs have to understand is – where can they win? At what level is winning? Is winning at the level of one well-paid lobbyist having a private conversation with the committee staffer on ways and means and a phrase in a bill and that's the end of the story? Well, if you can win that way, God bless you. (laughs) Do it, right? Because that's by far and away the cheapest way to go. Um, but a lot of issues, you can't win there. You've got to go one step out, maybe mobilize some interest groups. Maybe you've got to try to get some press interest. If you have to go to the public, boy, you better be careful because you don't exactly know how that will play out. Also, when we think about the public, we think about elections. Mm-hmm. And I think the chief question and, and what you uh, you look at in the book is do elections matter? Do election mandates matter? And that's so much more, as, as is everything in the book, is so much more complicated than conventional wisdom would have us believe. So elections are – mandates really don't exist. I think we can pretty much say that they are social constructions. And, you know, the famous political scientist Robert Dahl has a, has a very well-read essay on this point. However, I think what Dahl overlooks and a lot of people who've tried to sort of prove that the electorate doesn't have a mandate is that they're looking at the wrong place. Mm-hmm. Mandates exist in the heads of politicians. Right. They, they may not exist in the public who, you know, voted for Barack Obama because, oh, my God, were they sick of that war in Iraq and there was a financial meltdown. So, you know, probably not much of a mandate. There. But he used the word mandate. But Barack Obama went around the country. And, you know, it's just human nature, right? Right. If you spend 365 days saying more or less the same thing, the mandate exists in your head. (laughs) It may not exist in the public, but boy, it exists in your head. Same with these Tea Partiers, right, who went and campaigned and upset, you know, moderate Republicans in primaries on saying the same thing, got to Congress saying the same thing, they believe they have a mandate. 
So uh, what I argue here is the way to understand mandates is to understand the mandate from in the head of the politicians. And, and, and that's where I think, for instance, the Obama White House failed to anticipate the summer of 2010. They didn't realize that not only were these guys out there beating up on health care all the time, but when they got to Congress, they intended to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And they will, would keep trying and trying to do something about it. And I think there was a little bit of surprise at how in, intense that was. But an election doesn't really settle anything. It kind of sets the stage, but it doesn't really settle anything because the book is filled with examples where politicians win elections and then fail to do what they want to do. Has any president in the modern era come into office uh, with huge election margins, victory margins, and also a Congress of his party in such large numbers that even if we shouldn't call it a mandate, it looks like what we might Mm -hmm. think of as a mandate? Well, the, the, the clearest example in recent modern American history is um, Lyndon Johnson and the 1964 election. So 64, Johnson just sweeps into office. Mm-hmm. He's got a, a weak Republican, sort of radical Republican uh, opponent in Barry Goldwater. Um, he is riding a wave of sympathy after the assassination of John Kennedy. And he just sweeps into office and sweeps a huge Democratic majority in the House and in the Senate. He pounces on that to do a couple of very big things, most of it in the area of civil rights, which is why he is really the the godfather of civil rights. And he does that and he creates the Great Society and he gets all that stuff through. And in 1966, he loses almost all those seats again. Okay, so one of the things about these big elections is presidents generally know, take advantage of them quick. Generally, the mandate doesn't stay around for a long time. Well, it's a fascinating book, and I commend it to everyone's attention. Before we end, I wanted to uh, ask, what's next for your research and the Center for Effective Public Management? My own personal research is going in two directions. One is I'm going to write a little bit more about this notion of presidents as managers and and sort of break down what presidential management looks like as opposed to, you know, the management of a GS-15 in the government. And the other thing that we're very excited about is doing a lot of work on American democracy particularly looking at understudied aspects of democracy that contribute to polarization, mostly in the area of congressional primaries. And so with the midterms coming up next year, I'm hoping that we'll have a lot of good scholarship coming on that issue. The center runs the FixGov blog. Will a lot of this be found on the blog? A lot of this will be found on the blog, and a lot of this will be found in working papers. And um, we will also continue to watch the implementation of Obamacare from the public management perspective. So you can find a lot of that on the blog, too. Terrific. Well, this has been a very interesting conversation. I really appreciate your time and look forward to uh, keeping up with what the center is, is doing. So thank you, Elaine, for your time. Oh, thank you. To learn more about Elaine Kmark and the work of the Center for Effective Public Management, follow them on brookings.edu slash fixgov.